Hey, Mr. Pond Boss, tell me what to do to make all my Lunker Lake dreams come true. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of the Pond Boss podcast series. Without further ado, here is your host, longtime private fisheries biologist and editor of Pond Boss magazine, Bob Lusk. Greetings and what a treat we've got today. You're not going to believe it. Hanging out at the kitchen table of Dr. Mark Griffin. My gosh, Mark's been a long time since we've had a chance to hang out together. It sure has. Welcome to Tomball. Yeah, golly. Tomball, Texas, outside of Houston. You know, folks, if you don't know who Dr. Griffin is, you need to. Mark's, one of, one of, his, uh, one of his claims to fame as a Ph.D. nutritionist is he's helped develop all the Aquamax lineups of fish food for Purina. That's right. Yeah, and you know, let's just let's we just, had a good time doing that. Didn't oh, we? that was really fun. I, I hated that we had to go fishing. <laughs> yeah, well, that was the downside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, got to go to Kingfisher Society and study those fish and see how the feed was working there. But you know, one of my favorite things about what you did was I'll never forget the phone call you you made back in nineteen. No, I guess it was two thousand four or five. You asked me if I saw the picture of that giant bass that had been caught in California. Yeah, it's probably the one out of Castaic. That's it. I believe it, that's a long-term memory for me. So, yeah. but I think that was the big one out of Castaic. Yes. Yes, that bass weighed like twenty-five pounds. It was. It was up there. In your questions, you asked me, "Do you know what that fish ate?" And of course, that was the first time I'd heard the word "viral" associated with a picture on the internet. That yeah, that went everywhere. Yes. Of course, when you have a picture of a twenty-five-pound largemouth, it should go everywhere. Yes, as well it should, and as well it did, and. I remember you saying, do you know what that fish ate? Well, yes, I did. Rainbow trout. That's right. So pick up the story and tell folks well, about that. bottom line was we were trying to play around with this uh, feed train lar- largemouth bass. How we how can we get these uh, the size up on these fish? And, you know, a largemouth, largemouth bass is going to eat anything that it can get down its throat. And uh, these hatchery-raised rainbow trout are basically like swimming hot dogs for them. They're high fat, uh, you know, high protein morsels. And so basically what I decide is, well, that's how they get big. Why don't we make, why don't we make a, make a prepared diet that mimics a rainbow trout? And from a nutritional standpoint, that's not that difficult to do. Now you have to work around the edges a little bit if you want a floating feed, uh, in that day and age, um, the technology was such that you still had to have, oh, at least 10 or 15 percent uh, carbohydrate. That's just to make the pellets stick together. To make the pellets stick together, but also to get that expansion that allows the float. And that was, at that time, deemed important. And so that was probably the only difference uh, between, significant difference between the prepared diet that became Aquamax largemouth and uh, rainbow trout, nutritionally speaking. So you had, if I remember right, you took a like a 12-ounce rainbow trout and you turned that into how big of a pellet is the same nutrition quality as well, a 12-inch rainbow trout? It, you know, it depends on the... It depends on the specifics. Was that of, like two or three of, ounces of fish food? But roughly speaking, yes. Roughly, yeah. okay. By the time you, basically all you're doing is, uh, is uh, correcting for dry matter. And so a rainbow trout, depending on how fat it is, is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of, say, 20 to 35% 
dry matter, uh, something like that. The rest is water. Yeah. And so when you're feeding a dry, uh, dry uh, floating biscuit, you know, you need a lot less of it to get the same nutrition. You bet. Mm-hmm. You bet. You know, and, and during your tenure with Purina Mills, you uh, you helped develop and produce the lineup of Aquamax fish foods, correct? Correct. I actually started when I was in graduate school uh, consulting with Purina Mills, and we designed, at that time, we designed the Aquamax from scratch, and then, of course, we attempted to better them and make them, you know, uh, you know, better and better for specific purposes, largemouth being one of those examples, uh, over time. And of course I went to St. Louis and worked there full time for, I guess, a little over 12 years and it was 12 great years of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having a job like that where you have the freedom to go out and, you know, do things like, Hey, let's make, let's make the best largemouth bass feed that we can. That's a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I was lucky. <laughs> you know, lucky. That luck plays a role, does it? Wink, wink. <laughs> well, it does, you know. <laughs> yeah, and the thing I love about the variety of sizes of pellets mm-hmm. allows us the opportunity to have a feeding program. So in recreational fishing ponds, we can actually have a feeding program, you know, where we can feed little bitty fish of this species or bigger fish of this species, you know, that's right. Yeah, and, and that was kind of by design. You just got back from a conference on fish nutrition. What were some of your take-home points about that? Well, that was in the zoo world. And I should say, let me back up and say in, at Perina, I also um, worked and uh, worked for the zoo group. And we fed basically all the major zoos in the United States, but also uh, some in South America, Mexico, um, the East, uh, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, all all used our products. So we were constantly working on feeding, well, our old saying was from aardvarks to zebras. <laughs> and that was pretty accurate. We yeah. did. So this was a group of zoo professionals, but also um, some people from academia. And I was invited to participate as well uh, with my background in the zoo and the fish world. And boy, if you can sum it all down to um, to one take home, I tell you what we learned about largemouth bass would probably be encyclopedic compared to what's known about all those fish that are being brought in from all the various habitats around the world and being brought into these big aquariums and so forth. Many of them, um, I mean, we're at the stage of you know figuring out what do they really eat, what will they eat, and what, of course are the key nutritional requirements for those species. And those sometimes give you very good clues and you can make very educated guesses. There's a whole field out there called comparative nutrition. And this is a great example of using comparative nutrition. You can tell things by gut length and uh, the structure of the mouth and, and just, you know, the whole morphology of the animal. You can make very educated guesses of what they need. But their educated guesses and at some point you have to you have to test it that's right and that's the bottom line is you don't know there is no nrc there is no textbook that if you bring in a fish um johnny darter from a creek well there's probably not very much information you're going to get out of the literature of of uh really how 
how to feed that animal. So you kind of got to look at the life history and the way that fish lives to try to figure out what it might eat. That's exactly right. And there's really two separate issues in all of this of feeding fish like this, because remember, they're, they're, they're wild animals. There's an issue of what they eat in nature and what you can get them to eat in captivity. Another issue, and that is what their nutrient requirements are, the nutrition of what they eat. And those two things are not the same at all. Uh, At some level, if you learn enough about the science of an animal, what they require is nutrients. And that's not feedstuffs. That's not intact organisms. That's, uh, you know, a a largemouth bass doesn't require getting fed rainbow trout to live or to get big for that matter. That's right. It just happens to be a very good feed that packages it all together in one in one good package but what they really need are the nutrients and so as a nutritionist um, there's always that strive to really uh, to make sure you know what you're really chemically speaking feeding that animal and what they're thriving on you know but what they'll actually ingest may be you know very limiting and how you go about doing that I love that tell you let's switch gears a little bit let's uh, since most people that listen to this podcast are pond owners yeah so let's come at it from a pond owner angle let's say that uh you have a pond oh by the way you do i do <laughs> if you're going to choose the right kind of fish food and you're in a store and you see uh the list and there's a variety of different kinds of feeds you've got these Grain-based fish well, foods. Bob, well, how do you pick that? <laughs> we were just in a feed store earlier today, weren't we? Yes, we Only were. We were getting the bale of hay uh, for some horses, but that's a different. But but I happened to mention to Bob as we were walking out, there was, they had a stack of uh, catfish feed, Yes, as I recall. Um, and now you're getting into the very practical. And, and the very practical is um, there's nothing wrong with catfish feed, but catfish feed is designed to produce a channel catfish for the least possible amount of money. And, um, oh golly, you can go back 30 years ago and they were making, for instance, fish meal free catfish feed. And that whole idea of that was, you know, to keep the price down and to keep the volatility of the cost of the ingredients down by going all plant stuffs. Well, obviously since then we all know, you know, corn's been on a roller coaster. It got up to $8.00. Um, you know, and been from two to three dollars for decades, and you know, skyrockets to eight. So, what we learned was all kinds of different feedstuffs can be highly volatile in price, not just fish meal. But <clears throat> if you're feeding a top of the line carnivore like largemouth bass, which would probably be of interest to most of the people that have you have uh, to be feed trained uh-huh. when they stock them because that's right, a bass is not going to learn to come eat fish food mm-hmm. typically in a in a private pond. Yeah, but if you even think about uh, bluegill, which are readily oh, yeah. trainable on feed, you bet. Uh, a bluegill is really a top of the line uh, carnivore too. That's right. Nutritionally speaking, people don't know it's that. It's not like a catfish. Yeah, if you just watch a bluegill or look at their gut contents when you're filleting them, you're not going to find anything but probably incidental uh, plant matter in there. That may mean that when they're eating a uh, they're eating an invertebrate off of a weed. Maybe they'll get a bit of that leaf of a you know of a, of right. a weed in there yeah. too. But it's to. incidental. That's yeah. right. What they're living off of is animal life. Whether it's invertebrates, whether it's um, you know little uh, fish, you know uh, they're going to eat 
anything that they can get that in, you know, into that small little mouth of theirs. But the one thing is it's going to be incredibly highly digestible, carnivorous-based diet. And so if you're feeding a top-of-the-line carnivore, whether it's a bluegill, rainbow trout, or largemouth bass, or walleye, or whatever else you might be feeding, um, you're not going to have that good of luck feeding a least-cost-formulated catfish diet that's designed for an omnivorous fish yep. like channel catfish. They will eat it. They will grow to some extent on it, but they won't thrive on it. I tell it. people it's kind of like you and I eating a donut. Mm-hmm. We well, like it. It tastes good. But... Yeah, that's a good example. But, you know, the closest thing that we have is a top-of-the-line carnivore in our terrestrial wor- world that most people are familiar with is the domestic house cat. And the domestic house cat isn't even close to as carnivorous as a bluegill. I mean, a domestic house cat has a, you know, gut length of something like four times the length of its body. This is a key, I I mentioned those morphological ways of telling how carnivorous an animal is and the differences. Well, a largemouth bass has a gut length of about the same length as its its body. In fact, some of the fish actually have a shorter, and bass being probably one of them, but um, have a shorter gut track than their body. So it's basically almost a straight pipe from their mouth to their exit, to mm-hmm. their vent. I mean, that's it. And they're going to digest and it real the efficient. the reason it's so incredibly, and just to put that into perspective, if you get to herbivorous animals like a sheep, they or you know, goats or things like that, cattle, their GI tract might be 25, 30 or more times the length of their body. And so that just shows how much more effort it takes to get nutrients out of eating grass and leaves and those kind of things that a, that a grazer or a browser uh, herbivorous animal might eat. So that's, that's just one of the, uh, getting back to comparative nutrition, that's just one of the things you look at. But what it tells you scientifically is you better feed them something that's readily digestible. And to do that, you want to decrease the amount of overall plant feedstuffs that have relatively lower availability, nutritionally speaking, and increase the amount of animal products. And in these products, we're talking fish meal being the the key driver because fish meal is exactly what these carnivorous fish um, are eating. They're eating fish flesh, and that's what fish meal is. So when a a pond owner comes into the feed store, they're looking for when they... I tell them to read the tag. Yeah. So when they read the tag, you want fish meal to be the number one ingredient listed if you're going to feed bluegill or feed train mm-hmm. largemouth bass or hybrid striped bass, fish like that. Yeah, in the in the practical sense, that's that's the way to do it. Is now look at the tag and make sure fish meal is right up there at the very top. And also, when you open the bag, and in, in fact, even if the bag's not open, you should be able to smell it. Yes. It should smell like fish. <laughs> you know, that's the one great thing about fish meal is you can't hide it because you can smell it. And um, it smells like fish, and that's, you know, that, that's how you know it's there. I got a, I got a, a chain of emails from uh, through a, a dealer mm-hmm. not long ago, and one of the freight companies had brought them some fish food, and they didn't get it out of the truck for a day or two, and the freight company was starting to wonder if their truck was going to smell like fish food. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> but that's what it takes. If you, so, folks out there, if you're wanting to feed fish, you need to know what fish you're going to feed, mm-hmm. whether they take the pellets. Red ear won't do it. 
Bluegills will. Feed trained largemouth bass will. Crappie won't. Channel catfish will. So take the time to learn about your different species of fish. That way you can decide whether or not you want to feed them. And then once you know which fish you do want to feed, that's when you can pick out the feed that you want. One of the things I like to tell people, uh, for example, Purina came out with MVP, which is nine different pellet sizes of Aquamax. You know, and, and, and about 30% of that feed slowly sinks through the water column. So the little bitty fish can eat those little bitty pellets. So you're able to, to not just feed all the feed hogs. You can have a feeding program where you're feeding all different sizes of fish. Right. I, I remember one landowner in particular, he says, hey, I want to grow the biggest bluegill I can as fast as I can. I'm 78 years old. I don't want to wait six or eight years to catch a one and a half or two pound bluegill. Mm-hmm. So what I told him told him to do was to sit, to, he put, I told him to put six feeders on a six acre pond and he spaced them evenly. And he had those feeders go off 10 minutes apart all the way around the lake and have him do that three times a day. So the feed hogs grew really, really fast. So he could get some fast-growing fish big quickly. Right. There's always leapers and laggers in, in any fish population. Talk about, talk about leapers and laggers. Well, that just there always are. And you've got the ones that are more aggressive. They eat more. And they grow faster. And they're just the dominant fish. And they're going to be the ones that just outcompete others, more aggressive fish. And it's just very, very common, whether you're talking about a group of bluegill, all from the same batch, hybrid striped bass, largemouth, it doesn't matter, all of them. What you'll have is you'll have 5-10% of fish that just after a few months are multiple times the size of the rest. And then you have the laggers or the runts is what, you know, agriculture used to call them, you know, runt pigs and things like that, the run of the litter. And you have another five or 10% on the other end of the the bell curve. So um, what you're doing with that is you're setting up a uh, process where that with the where those leapers those very aggressive behavioral fish they can go around and just keep eating and um and they're going to be the first to the trough every time and can be the fastest growing fish oh, yeah. typically yeah now that doesn't mean that you want to now you may want to cull some of the laggers which in a bass bluegill pond the bass will take care yeah, of that that's exactly right they'll eat the laggers you know now but if for folks out there that are wanting to try to feed some fish you know, for a period of time before they stock any predators on top of these fish, then one thing I tell them is is protect your biggest fish and your next size down as they're growing because the biggest fish may be 8 inches long and the next size is 6 inches long. Well, those 6-inch fish may still have the genetic potential to exceed these faster-growing fish just because they're kind of like a mule pulling the plow compared to the quarter horse that jumped out and in in, mm-hmm. in the head start is that a fair statement? Oh, I think that's exactly right. They're still very good quality fish, and um, just because behaviorally they're not as aggressive as the other fish doesn't mean they don't have the potential to get huge. So let's kind of sum it up a little bit. Let's just give people just a handful of tips on on feeding a pond. Well, I was going to mention one one other thing, okay. but and that is, and maybe it's a different discussion for a different time. But I'll plant the seed, and that is, I mentioned earlier that at the time the technology was such that we were we were confined to having say fifteen percent carbohydrate in those diets. There's now there's now really two good alternatives for the real. Um, real enthusiasts. This is probably people, you know, that want to absolutely 
maximize the growth of their fish. There's probably two ways where you can even get that carbohydrate out. Remember, you're feeding top-of-the-line carnivores that aren't going to see carbohydrate. But at the time, the technology was such, it was just only being used in aquariums, but that was the gel diets. And there are some, I shouldn't say they were only used in aquariums. Of course, there's probably some enthusiasts out there that um, used them long time before that. But around that time period we were talking about, there was some people that um, that we know, you know, that were great in, say, bluegill, production of, of monster bluegill, that started using these gel diets indoors. And you can see some phenomenal growth out of these types of diets. And basically what you're doing is you're using a simple protein gelatin as the binding agent. Um, and therefore you can get rid of all the carbohydrate. There's really no carbohydrate. And if you think of what a carnivore eats in nature, there's virtually no carbohydrate. Yeah. It's almost yeah. incidental. You might get a little bit, you know, for those technical people, they'll say, oh, there could be a little bit of glycogen in the animal. Fair enough, there is, but it's minuscule. You bet. So we're talking 99% plus uh, carbohydrate free. There's another process now, extruded diets can be made carbohydrate free also are essentially no carbohydrate. So no grain products are necessary. You don't need any corn or rice um, or wheat would be, corn and wheat would be the two primary ones used in the U.S. And there's now a technology to um, extrude diets. Now, it's going to be hard to make them float, but you can at least extrude them and make really nice products that are uh, starch free. And that's really the next generation of feeding these top-of-the-line carnivores. Do you think you that's going to happen? It, it has happened. Yeah, it, 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 the technology's there. Uh, the products have been made. They have been used, I know, at some top-line um, aquariums, uh, the extruded product. So it, it, it's, it's real. It's happened. It's probably a matter of, you know, next generation, someone getting it um, marketed more broadly. Would that be an $80 bag of fish feed? I don't know. I'm way out of my... I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't even want to guess. I've been out of the fish feed manufacturing business, as you yeah, know, for a decade yeah, you, now. You know, and the last thing I need to do is sit here yeah, and guess on price. going to cost? Yeah. yeah, boy, and that's so volatile. <laughs> yeah. You know, in today's world, a bag of Aquamax costs somewhere between 40 and $45 to the John Q. Pondmeister out there. Mm -hmm. But I tell them, you know, it's worth it. It's worth it because yeah. you just got to get past the sticker shock. Because they're going to convert that feed somewhere around 1.3 to 1, typically, sometimes better than that, because those fish are also eating natural foods in the pond. So if you really drill down into it, it might be even well, way better than that. Well, and I can tell you, that. I've been supplying products to the Atlantic salmon industry now for the last decade. And I can tell you, um, these, these guys are also growing top-of-the-line carnivorous fish, Atlantic salmon, and they're spending a fortune on making the absolutely highest quality, highest digestibility product. And it's because these guys that are doing it for a living, it pays off. Yep. And those products definitely use a lot of high-end product like fish meal, fish oil. There's even, believe it or not, there's even commercial Atlantic salmon diets now that use krill. And krill, oh, for wow. any of those that know, have bought some krill oil off the shelf, no, it's extremely expensive. Yes. But it it is wonderful, especially for... Uh, feeding first feeding fish or feeding challenged like disease challenged or environmentally challenged fish that's right that will help elicit that uh, feeding response because you know what what fish doesn't want to eat a krill 
And you know, they all do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I kind of do it's, now. It's like me eating shrimp, you know. <laughs> I'm going to eat right. one even if I'm full. I still eat another one. Well, to kind of start wrapping us up a little bit, it sounds to me like here's several take-home points. First of all, know your species of fish and figure out which feeds are the best feeds for those species, not only for those species, but the sizes of those species. So a one to two inch bluegill is going to eat differently than a six to eight inch bluegill, which is going to feed differently than a 14 or 15 inch largemouth bass. So it's real important that you pick the right product based on the species of fish that you're going to feed. Don't be so concerned about the cost of the feed because the value proposition is there if it's a good top of the line feed. For example, you heard Mark mention earlier today in this podcast that, uh, it, it takes a large amount of bait fish for a game fish to gain some weight because they're mostly water. It takes about 10 pounds of bait fish for a bass to gain one pound. That's right. But if you take those bait fish and you wring out the water, there's about two pounds of goodies and eight pounds of water. Yeah, just to put that in perspective, they now have, in the, across the industry, Atlantic salmon, they have the feed conversion ratio down to one to one. And that means for every one pound of feed they're putting in the water, they're getting a pound of Atlantic salmon out of that. That's pretty and, amazing. And if you compare that to a wild Atlantic salmon, there's virtually no way they're going to do better than 10 to 1. 10 mm-hmm. pounds of eating to give them one pound of fish. So that's, that's right. just packaging more. All the, the only key to that, it's not that there's magic, it's that they're packaging great nutrition more densely into what they're eating. So they're just not feeding all that water. That's the biggest thing. Now there's other ancillary things like they don't have to go out and hunt. You know, yeah, I mean, a, a wild Atlantic salmon has to go out and hunt their food. Yep. And that obviously requires a lot of energy. Which and, they don't and, have to have in a raceway. As a, exactly right. Mark Griffin, thanks for letting me hang out with you at your kitchen table today. And well, come back anytime. Hey, it's been I, my pleasure. I'd love to, and we'll have another conversation another day. There you go, folks. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you the next go-around. Hey, Mr. Pond Boss, tell me how. Hey, Mr. Pond Boss, let's do it now. Hey, Mr. Pond Boss, you're the one that makes fishing so much fun. Well, I woke up this morning and I headed for my pond. Meet Mr. Pond Boss, yeah, we're gonna chase us some. Firing up old Spartan, show where the living breed. Hey, Mr. Pond Boss, tell me what I need.